youth group together. And um, as I mentioned before, we are coming up to the end of chapter... Ooh, let there be light, am I right? Uh, we're coming up to the end of chapter 5, and I hope that this slow time, this slow, methodical, verse-by-verse, step-by-step exposition of Jesus' most famous sermon has been profitable to you. Um, That you'd find encouragement, that you find a guidance, a shaping of Christ's mind and spirit in these words as he shows us a better way. Uh, Just to let you know, there are Bibles in the back and papers and pens that are available to you if you need one. Um, But tonight we'll be in Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. And we'll be looking at just four verses. Four verses tonight. The title of this sermon is akin to what I've been titling it the past couple of weeks. Uh, We had your brother and your anger. We had your brother and your lust. And now, uh, Matthew chapter 5, verses 33 to 37, we have your brother and your words. Your brother and your words. And so let us read God's word together. Matthew chapter 5. Verses 33 to verse 37. And Jesus says, Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but you shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. This reads the living word, a true, helpful, timely word of God. Uh, Integrity. What qualities make a person, a man or a woman of integrity? A quick googly search of the definition of integrity gives a person a sweeping look at a a strong or full adherence to a moral code, a honesty, wholeness, single-mindedness as opposed to double-mindedness. There is an element of consistency in the person of integrity. There's an element of trustworthiness when it comes to the person of integrity. You can give the person of integrity responsibility and have the full assurance of knowing that this person of integrity will complete what they have agreed or they have undertaken to do. In other words... The man or the woman of integrity is the man or the woman of his or her word. Uh, The character quality of integrity is far and far between to find today, especially in young people, young people. 
especially in you middle schoolers, high schoolers, college students, in your age group, you are the most wishy-washy, the most inconsistent, the most unreliable age group because you are young. You are immature. You have lived your entire lives only thinking about yourselves. Your parents have served you your entire lives up until this point. So the concept of integrity, this concept that the world expects of you, though it hardly ever teaches you, the concept of being true to your word, uh, true to what you believe, true to what you proclaim is hard to find in young people today. Uh, The older generation, the boomers, uh, they like to call you entitled. However, uh, the Apostle Paul speaks to a young man, his young protege named Timothy, and he says, let no one look down on you for your youthfulness, but rather in speech and conduct and love in faith and in purity, show yourself an example to those who believe. So in your youthfulness, Paul says, be an example to not just your peers, but those who are older. Be an example to everyone. 1 Timothy 4.12. And notice in that verse how Paul highlights that you are to be an example first in what? In your speech. That even before love, even before your conduct, even before your faith and your purity, you are to be first an example of your speech. Why? Uh, Because again, speech is the number one indicator of immaturity in young people. What you say reveals who you are. Uh, Your slang, your abuse, your insensitivity, your lack of empathy are all disqualifying factors that do make people look down on you for your youthfulness. Furthermore, Jesus knows full well that this problem of speech, false speech, is an issue that pervades not just your generation, my generation, this young generation, but all generations. Except as the older you get, the better you get, the better people get, are, uh, get at hiding their insensitivity and their lack of care, their lack of empathy. As you grow older, you'll get better at flattering other people, get better at kissing up to people, uh, speaking falsehood to them in the guise of speaking sweet things that they want to hear. Sweet-sounding morsels, the proverb says, that only goes down bitterly. As you grow older, you'll get better at being passive-aggressive with your words. In the name of not being confrontational, uh, you'll be passive-aggressive. You communicate with that false smile on your face, but with the full intention of hurting and tearing down. Uh, To dig the knife of your words into people, but come off as quote-unquote nice. So far, Jesus um, has an issue with one's words. Uh, One speech is a perennial problem. A generational problem. We've already looked at two commandments, the sixth and the seventh commandments of God and how it relates to our relationships with others, how anger and lust uh, affect our relationships with other people. But interestingly enough, Jesus skips the eighth commandment. Do not steal. 
And after describing and delineating and giving insight into the sixth and seventh commandments, he skips the eighth one and goes into something akin to the ninth. Do not bear false testimony. And the natural question is to ask, why? Why would Jesus skip out on talking about stealing and move to talking about not bearing a false witness? I think the best answer is to simply look at what the text says, what he quotes. After teaching on anger and lust, he moves on to talking about giving a certificate of divorce and now not making false vows or false oaths. So in technicality, this relates to the ninth commandment, but I think it speaks to a broader application of it, closely related. And so I think the only logical conclusion for us to understand that is Jesus is moving past the Ten Commandments now, uh, but to the wealth of commandments found um, in the first five books of the Bible known as the Torah. Uh, Jesus is addressing to the Jews and particularly to the, to the Pharisees um, different commandments that they would have likely taken advantage of and twist the meaning of. So we're talking about one's vows, one's word. Are you good for your word this morning? Is your word good? Is it reliable? Can people take you at your word when you make a vow to them? This issue isn't a side issue. I want you to understand this. It is important. It is, is it important to God because God is a God of truth. There is no falsehood found in God. Everything God says is true and it is reliable. It is trustworthy. The word of God is sufficient. What God says will come to pass as he shall do it. God keeps his covenants. God keeps his promises. Therefore, as believers of God, we are to reflect God's character in truthfulness. So Jesus addresses this issue of keeping one's vows, having one's word being good and true. He clarifies that the problem isn't actually making a vow and keeping it or not, but rather not making any such lavish promises in the first place. For Jesus, it isn't about making a promise and thus staking your, re- uh, your reputation or your word on the line, but rather simply being true to it. Therefore, for the Christian, the issue is to just simply be true to what you believe and what you say you believe in. Let you be true to both what you believe in and what you subsequently say and proclaim. And so similarly to the past couple of weeks, our our outline breaks down similarly because Jesus uses the same formula. Again, we'll see the clarification of the law in verse 33. We'll see a better expression of truthfulness in verses 34 through 36. A better expression of truthfulness. And then in verse 37, a better alternative to swearing or making a vow. A better alternative to swearing in verse 37. So let's look at verse 33. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. Jesus subtly moves away from the Ten Commandments to a common, to common misconstrued laws and commandments from the entirety of the Torah. Uh, here he quotes Deuteronomy 23, 
Verse 24. Moses is continuing to explain what is actually a re-explanation of God's law the second time. Moses is speaking to a new generation of Israelites after their fathers have failed to trust in Yahweh and uh, failed to enter by faith into the promised land. Here in the Deuteronomy or the second law, the second giving of the law, Moses, the old leader, the old guard is preparing a new generation to enter and fulfill what God has promised them would be fulfilled to their forefather Abraham. So when you read Deuteronomy, it's not a new law, but similarly a clarification of it. This is the nature of what theologians like to call progressive revelation. As time moves forward uh, and the Lord acts behalf on his faithful ones, he reveals more and more of himself. Therefore, one's understanding should be progressively growing deeper and deeper as time passes on. This was true for this second generation of Exodus sojourners. And this should be true for those uh, during the times of Jesus. As the author of Hebrews opens, when he writes Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1, Long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. So it is Jesus Jesus is now clarifying to the disciples now the right interpretation of the law. You realize that it is he, Jesus, the person that is the final point of revelation. As the culmination of everything in scripture is anticipated, here we have Jesus teaching, revealing, illuminating what it means to follow his father. Jesus, the final revelation of God, the final picture, the fullness of revelation, meaning he is everything revelation pointed towards. He is everything revelation is meant for. Jesus is teaching us how to interpret his word. Ultimately, how to interpret him. John 1.1 1, 1 says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In short, this theologically rich verse describes to us that Jesus, as the second person of the Trinity, was not only the Word of God, but he was also eternally with God, coexisting with God, and was God, very God. What does it mean to be the Word? Why am I explaining all this theology to you? Because I need you to understand why truth matters. What does it mean to be the word? There is virtually, sorry guys, no earthly equivalent to this concept. Uh, but imagine with me what words are. Blah, blah, blah. You're speaking, you're speaking words. What words are and what they do. Uh, they speak your mind, right? They Words express what's on your heart. When you speak, your words represent your person. Your words give you color to your character. So for example, if all of your words were crude joking, expletives, curse words, put downs, mean comments, what does that say about your character? It says you have no character of godliness. 
but rather it says you have a character of a really immature, mean person. So when God speaks, what kind of character does God's word reflect? So when Jesus is the final revelation of God, when all of scripture points to Jesus and Jesus calls himself the word of God, God spoken through his son, how does Jesus reflect the character of God? Simply put, everything you need to know about God, you can learn from his word. You can learn from his son. So when Jesus says that if you have seen the son, you have seen the father, that means that is, that is perfectly true. Jesus perfectly represents and displays who God is. Therefore, he is God's word, the final point of revelation. Everything that has been written is about Jesus. God being perfectly true, perfectly good, perfectly just, perfectly gracious, perfectly merciful, perfectly kind is all wrapped up in the person of Jesus Christ. He is the word of God. He perfectly represents all of God's character, all of his perfections, all of his attributes. When you know Jesus, then you can be sure that you know God. So what is all this theology that I just broke down to you? What does that have to do with taking an oath or swearing or keeping your word? Well, when you have the word of God perfectly representing God and all God says and does, all the promises God makes, then you know for a fact that God demands the same from his people. God desires his people to be like his son, to listen to him, to emulate him. And so God expects that we're to keep our words like his son keeps his word. Christians are to be true in what they say as they are true in what they believe. You cannot say you believe in one thing and turn out to not have your life match in what you say you believe. Therefore, when it comes to taking oaths, swearing on anything, Jesus says, just don't swear at all. There's no need. If your character matches your speech, which matches your words, there is no need to swear. There's no need to give people this kind of assurance by swearing because you are true in every sense of the term. Now, don't get me wrong. There is a, there's a place and a purpose for swearing. I expect if any of you show up in a court of law to put your hand on the Bible and, and swear. There's, there's a solemnity attached to swearing. But the purpose of Jesus going into this, the purpose of this commandment is to demonstrate the people of Israel how serious one's word is. So it covers the range of glib, insincere, unserious speech to the serious, solemn, life or death matters and pledges. Regardless of what the circumstances behind your words may be, you are to take what you say seriously. That is the essence of this law. However, for the Pharisees, all they cared about is whether they fit into the parameters of the law or not. Therefore, when they could fulfill an oath, an oath that ultimately benefited them, made them look good, they swore. Uh, They swore. 
And then as we will go deeper in a bit, they swore to the highest heaven. They swore on God's name. On heaven itself, they swore to show how pious they were, how godly they were, how serious they were, how respectful they must be. But when a situation did not fit their agenda, and when it did not make them look good, didn't benefit them, they swore negatively, I can't do it. They swore and they cursed. They swore to the depths of Sheol, to the depths of hell. They swore to show how serious they were uh, to not being able to fulfill a commitment. For example, in order to circumvent the taking care of their elderly parents and being responsible to the fifth commandment, honor your father and mother, they swore negatively that what they were supposed to give to their parents, they were going to give it to the Lord. See how pious and godly it made them seem? But simply, in truth, they were just using oaths as a means of their own gain. And Jesus recounts this command to introduce this concept that it isn't what a person says that God holds them accountable to, but it is who they claim to follow, who they claim to believe in. If you claim to follow God, if you claim to follow his son Jesus, then you are by association by nature of your allegiance, accountable to his standards, his righteousness, his words. In short, you are held to God's standard of truth and no one else's, not even your own. So he goes on to explain. He clarifies the law. Now he's giving us a better expression of truthfulness. Look at verse 34. What I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. What is Jesus' alternative to this pharisaical, self-serving interpretation of the law? Uh, do not take any oaths at all. Simply make no oath. Simply do not swear. Make no commitment, make no comment on how you fulfill anything you swear. When you say you'll do something, just do it, Nike. Uh, There is no need to express what you are going to do, especially when you cannot ultimately fulfill it. Uh, This is something that I I definitely can grow in. Uh, Just ask Rachel. Uh, When Rachel asks me, Oftentimes, what I want to do, and I make some suggestions, uh, there's an expectation established. And then when I change my mind, who does that ultimately hurt? When I no longer meet that expectation that I personally established. Rachel, my own integrity, my testimony as a follower of Christ, all of the above. Jesus gives us three distinct spheres first, and then a fourth one. Uh, These four distinct spheres of oaths where people swear by. Uh, First, by heaven. Definitely do not swear by heaven. Uh, Because who are you, O man, to speak for heaven? When you've never even been there. When you swear by heaven, you assume the position of heaven's spokesman. You are representing heaven. You speak for the throne. Jesus says, it is the throne of God. You are the herald to speak for God when you swear by heaven. It is like being the herald of a king. 
The guy who rolls in before the king comes and says, doo, 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 doo. here comes King George. It's like that guy. It says that you have a message from the king's throne. What do you think would happen if the king's herald falsely represents the king? I, I would imagine he would no longer be the herald or much less alive. Therefore, Jesus says, do not swear by heaven because you do not represent it. It is the throne of God. Unless you are the one sitting on that throne of God, you are not allowed to swear by it or represent it. Therefore, Jesus says, do not swear by heaven because you do not represent it. It is the throne of God. Next, he says, do not swear by the earth. And here, well, you may reason, we are inhabitants of the earth. I live on this earth. Why can't I swear by it? Because Jesus says, the earth is his footstool. God's footstool. Heaven is God's throne where he sits. And the earth is his footstool where he puts his feet on. The earth and all that it contains, the psalmist writes in Psalm 24, is Yahweh's. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What are you, O man, to swear by either of those? You are a creature inhabiting a creator's world. This is my father's world, written by the early 20th century hymnist, Presbyterian minister, B. Babcock. And I just want you to read the words. There's three verses, so we'll go quick. This is my father's world. To my listening ears, all nature sings and round me rings the music of the spheres. This is my father's world. I rest me in the thought of rocks and trees, of skies and seas. His hand, the wonders wrought. This is my father's world. The birds, their carols raise. The morning light, the lily white, declare their maker's praise. This is my father's world. He shines into all that's fair. In the rustling grass, I hear him pass. He speaks to me everywhere. This is my father's world. Oh, let me ne'er forget that though the wrong seems oft so strong, God is the ruler yet. This is my father's world. Why should my heart be sad? The Lord is king. Let the heavens ring. God reigns. Let the earth be glad. This is my father's world. Let me ne'er forget. Do not forget that the place you inhabit, the homes you live in, the, the, food, you eat, the, the food you eat and the drink you drink all belongs to your heavenly father. Therefore, who are you to swear by it? Why do you think you have the prerogative to stake the reputation of your father's creation on yourself? The answer is you can't. You're not allowed to. You're not, you are not the master or the creator of the earth. You are a creature that is likewise sustained by the creator as the world you inhabit in. All for his glory. Lastly, in this verse, in terms of geographical sphere, Jesus says, do not swear by Jerusalem. Jerusalem, uh, to us non-Jews here, I'm assuming every one of us is a Gentile, we're not Jews. Um, Jerusalem is a very special place. 
It's a place that the significance and the value is lost to us. It is here in Jerusalem in which God has named his holy hill. The place where his temple rests. The mountain where he will come to meet his people. Where his chosen king shall rule. Jerusalem is very special to the flow of salvation history as it is the place in which Jesus the king will return to rule and to reign from sitting on his ancestor David's throne. Therefore for the Jews of that day to swear by, swear upon Jerusalem is a very serious matter. But Jesus is saying, do not swear by this city. Do not swear by Jerusalem. Do not swear on your on your Jewishness, so to speak. For you are not its king. Rather, it is the city of the great king which you are not. Notice how the the spheres, these geographical spheres are slowly shrinking. They're going from the broad scope of the heavens to the earth, to the city of the great king, Jerusalem. Jesus arrives in verse 36 to the most personal of all, your head. Your head. Do not even swear on yourself, Jesus says. Why? In this day and age you, where you hear all these arguments for abortion, this is my body, I can do whatever I want with it. You hear arguments for sex outside of marriage. You hear arguments all based upon the presupposition that because I am me, you are you, Whatever's true for you is true for you. Whatever's true for me is true for me. You hear all of this nonsense. You think that your body is your own. Your body is your body. And you can do whatever you want with your body because you are your body. That is my body. However, Jesus is saying that is not true. You don't even have complete autonomy over yourself. You can't make a black hair white or white hair black. So what makes you think you own your body? Because you don't have complete control over yourself. That proves that you do not own yourself. Your body is in fact not your body, but rather it is whose? It is the Lord's. For the believer, it is also the temple of the Holy Spirit. For the married person, it is your spouse's. There are so many reasons scripture gives us that shows us that ultimately we are not our own. We have been bought with a price. Therefore, Paul says, honor God with your body. All this stems from the doctrine that God is truth. Not none of this postmodern subjective stuff. Everything about him is true as everything he says is truth. The concept of objective, solid, sufficient truth is far lost in this day and age. But I want you to know, I want you to grasp hold of, I want you to take this to the bank that God is the standard for everything that is true. Therefore, what he says is authoritative. What he says is absolute Therefore, when someone makes an oath on God and does not fulfill it or changes his mind, what does that say about the God that they proclaim they follow? It dishonors his name. It makes God look like a hypocrite. It brings shame upon God and it robs him of his 
glory. Therefore, Jesus says, do not swear. Do not swear on heaven, on earth, on the city of Jerusalem, on your Jewishness. Do not swear on yourself, on your own head. Do not swear on anything. Make no kind of oaths. And finally, he gives us an alternative. An alternative to swearing or an alternative to making oaths in verse 37. Let what you, sim- let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Jesus says, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Meaning when you say yes, you mean yes. You will do what you say. And when you say no, you mean that too. You cannot do what is asked of you. Jesus is addressing our fear of man here. He's also addressing our selfish tendencies here. It's so easy to change our minds on the whim to fit the minds of our peers. Peer pressure. Have you heard of it? We change our minds to fit what the crowds are saying. We give in to peer pressure. We look at circumstances based upon what favors us the most, what makes us look the best, what makes us the most happy. But Jesus is saying, let your yes be yes and your no be no. If you cannot do something, if you cannot go somewhere, if you cannot fulfill a responsibility, then just say no. You aren't hurting people's feelings. You aren't going to make them mad. Be a man or a woman of conviction and stand for what you believe in. Stand for scripture. When you see your peers at school engaging in activities that go against what the Bible teaches, what scripture teaches, then what does the scripture say? Don't associate yourselves with them. When you're pressed for time for an assignment, make the right and, right and necessary sacrifices to complete that assignment. Because you agreed to it when you took the class. Do not make promises you cannot keep. All of this is based upon the character of God, the example of Christ. Jesus fulfilled fulfilled what he came to do. He decided with his father that it would take an internal, enduring sacrifice. It would take a death of a perfect, spotless lamb on the cross to bring salvation to all those who would believe. And so he did not shirk away from his responsibility. Rather, he entrusted himself to God, who ultimately, through his resurrection, gave him the vindication or gave him the proof that what he did, his sacrifice was right. It was good. It was acceptable for payment of sin. Therefore, believers like you and me can stand firm in what we believe in and who we believe in. And let our yes be yes and our no be no. Jesus concludes this section with a final comment that this wavering in word, this double-mindedness in speech comes from a heart of evil. A heart set upon only itself. Therefore, do not lend yourself to this evil. But rather, entrust yourself and entrust your own word to God. Knowing that by being faithful in what you say and do, ultimately God finds final approval in it. In the end of the day, 
When you stand before God and he says, well done, good and faithful servant. Are you a man or a woman of integrity? Can people trust you in your word? Are you known to have a reputation of trustworthiness? Or are you the opposite? Um, are you untrustworthy? Do people, are people hesitant to give you tasks and responsibilities because they don't know if you can complete them or not on time? Are you untrustworthy? Do you prove your uselessness? The moral, the, the final teaching, the point that Jesus was making in the parable of the talents is stewardship in everything before God. Uh, the master, our God, is looking for workers, for looking for harvesters who can be entrusted with his word, who can be entrusted namely with his son. So as you guys are young, as you guys are growing in maturity, uh, seek to cultivate faithfulness over the little things. Being faithful over little and our master and our Lord will charge you over time to be faithful over much. As Christians, we have, as Paul explains, this treasure of the gospel entrusted to us, placed within us. We are clay pots, he describes. We are expendable, unremarkable. But God has given us his gospel, his word, his son, nonetheless. So let's be good stewards of that word entrusted to us. Let us be good for our word and hold fast to what we say and what we proclaim. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we know that we truly are like waves being tossed to and fro. That we are unstable. So Lord, we need Christ to be our anchor, to ground us, to hold us fast, knowing that if it were up to us to keep our salvation, to um, be godly, uh, to grow ourselves, mature ourselves, we would, we would have failed long, long, long ago and failed over and over and over again. And so, Lord, we can't thank you enough. We can't thank you for the gospel, that your word is true even though we are wavering that you hold us fast and you hold to your promises as often we do not. So I thank you for your faithfulness to us even when we've been so faithless. For you can't deny your character. You cannot change in who you are and you are our God of truth. You are God, our hope, our steadfast righteousness. So let us look to you, uh, the rock of ages who holds us fast. In your son's name we pray, amen. Well, friends, that concludes youth group for the night. Um, just to let you know, we have family time after church, which you are more than welcome to come. And something to put on your radar, uh, we have small groups coming back, small groups. And I hope that's something that you can look forward to. It's an opportunity in which you can grow intimately with a handful of other guys or gals around your age. 
guys for guys and gals for gals, to clarify. And so be on the lookout for that. I hope you sign up for one. Uh, sign up should be opening up at the end of this month. All right? But other than that, go in peace. You're dismissed.